Hello podcast listeners, my name is Susanna Roberts and welcome to the Property Women podcast where we are exploring the many opportunities available in the real estate industry. My guest today started out wanting to be an astronaut but after finishing university not knowing what she wanted to do a friend advised her to go into property saying it was intellectual and had great personality and it was not bad advice. Starting out at Land Securities, she moved into banking during the 2000s, cutting her teeth on mega European industrial deals. In 2014, she joined Lloyds Banking Group as head of institutional, advising sovereign wealth, private equity and pension fund clients, and since 2017 been head of real estate and housing, leading a 60-member strong team. She has become the IT Woman of Property, speaking out about the importance of innovation and diversity, mentoring women, promoting paternity and encouraging flexible working to bring about a change in mindsets. Please welcome Madeline McDougall. Hi Madeline. Hi, thank you very much for having me. I'm so excited to do this today. So Madeline, you have been incredibly successful holding a very senior position in the real estate industry at Lloyd's, the UK's second largest lender with a loan book of circa £17 billion as at the end of 2018. Have you always sought this sort of success? I wouldn't say I'd sought out the success. And when I was thinking about it, seeking out success is probably going to be the wrong driver of outcomes. But what I would say is I've been fairly brave in taking opportunities so right from a young age my parents were very keen to make sure that I said yes to everything and so I tried everything out and it meant that I was quite resilient and quite interested in a whole range of different activities and I think that's really shone through as I've gone into my career and as you said when I left university I really didn't know what I wanted to do and I think a lot of people are in the same boat And you have to try different things out and, as I say, be bold and be brave. Sometimes it's a bit serendipity and luck and where you end up. But actually, whatever you start out doing, it's about striving, pushing yourself, being brave and seeking out those opportunities. And can you explain, in a nutshell, what it is you do? Sure. The easiest way to explain it is if you bought a house, you would go out and get a mortgage, or most people would go out and get a mortgage. What I do is like that but sort of on a bigger scale so I run a team of people who look after clients who are buying large-scale commercial real estate also on the housing side as well so we support house builders and social housing providers and what we do is provide financing to allow them to acquire either the land and develop it out or the actual properties and run it as an investment portfolio. Your banking career started out in the equity side for our listeners that do not know What does that mean? So going back to my example of buying a house, you would be the equity and the bank that provided the mortgage would be the debt. Starting out on the equity side meant that I was investing money into real estate and I was doing that at a company called Land Securities Trillium. So we would make the investment decisions of what portfolios to buy and then either fund it through pure equity or obviously go out and ask third-party lenders to provide the debt to help us acquire that. Maddie, finance is a pivotal part of the real estate sector, but unless you're working in it or you only touch upon it, it can seem pretty confusing. Yeah. For listeners who do not know, what is the process of obtaining debt on a building? Say I wanted to buy a multi-let office building for £40 million. Not going to (laughs) happen. So first things first, you should think about your bank as a partner. And the relationship is key. The earlier view you give to us, the more 
guidance we can give you. So effectively, what we look for, the number one thing we always ask about is track record, who you are, how long you've been around, if you are a new entry, what exposure you've had to real estate before. It's not that we only look after people who have a long track record, but you know, your experience, have you actually been through some downturns before? How have you behaved in that downturn? And once we've got through that, who you are and what your business plan is and what you're planning to do and whether you've got your key stakeholders on board, it's really about, you know, the classic is, Real estate is all about location, location, location. So where it is, what the alternative use value is. So i.e. are there other uses for the property? So if it's a multi-lot office building in London, then you probably would say, actually, you need to care less about the alternative use value because you would hope there was always a market for letting in central London. But then we will have a look at that and really look at the attractiveness of the property. So how attractive would tenants find it to lease that building? And that's obviously a combination of a lot of things, location being one of them, condition of the property. People are now starting to talk far more about where their talent wants to work and the sustainability of the asset that they're buying into. So that becomes very key. Then we look at sort of length of income, so how long the leases are, how sustainable is the cash flow and resilient is the cash flow. And the length of the lease is obviously a key indicator of that. It doesn't always mean that it's going to be sustainable. So you look at the tenant quality, the tenant covenants, and you build a real picture of of how resilient the asset is going to be. And once we've done that and sensitised both the business plan and what happens in the down-down case scenario. So the other thing to remember is that equity has all the upside. All a bank has is the coupon or the margin that it charges the equity. So we have unlimited downside and then we have the coupon. So we have to be pretty sure that the downside risk is covered. So we run all sorts of scenarios to say things like... Where did yields go in the last downturn? Could we relet it? How long would it take us to relet it for? How much money would have to spend on the building if the tenants left? We come up with our sort of downside scenario. And if we can see our way through that, then we're very comfortable. So that's it in a nutshell. Sorry, that's quite a long-winded answer. It takes us quite a while to get there, but that's it. No, that's brilliant. Thank you. We've touched on it. So how would you assess a debt opportunity? What variables would you consider? So yeah, pretty much as I, as I mentioned before, There's obviously the other thing to add to that is what debt product the client wants. So, you know, we're obviously very much led by the client, by their view, by the business plan. We currently look to put loans on our balance sheet for about three to five years. But of course, if you want longer term financing, we have our Scottish widow's arm, which some people know is part of Lloyd's or some people don't. So uh, we're very keen to promote that. So Really, we try and tailor the offer that we put out there as to what the client wants, what their business plan is. Are they long-term holders of the asset or do they want to buy the asset and it's more of a turnaround story and then sell it on? But yeah, I mean, it's the key thing. It's uh, sponsorability um, to cure if anything goes wrong on that downside scenario, whether they have a track record, whether we like the asset. We often have financed it before because we're quite a large lender into the market so we have our own clear views on those assets and actually interestingly enough the transaction volumes last year are around 70 billion Lloyds Bank actually looked at 40 billion of that so we tend to have a very clear view of what we like and what we don't like and what we're willing to lend on so even just picking up the phone to us we can give you a clear view. Most of the real estate loans that Lloyds provides are for terms of three to five years because you guys expect things to have changed phenomenally within 10 years. What changes do you expect to see? There's a quote out there 
and I always assign it to Steve Jobs, but I'm actually sure someone else said it first, but it's that we overestimate change in two years and we underestimate change over a 10-year cycle. So what's interesting about that is if you look back 10 years ago, so 2009, I was over in New York. Well, actually, it was 2008, so 11 years ago. I remember someone showing me the iPhone and going, oh, my God, what is this? And, you know, a map where you could zoom in and zoom out, and all of it was touchscreen. And I was like, that'll never catch on. Everyone wants a keypad on their phone. The change that you can see over 10 years is phenomenal. And when I look at real estate... On one hand, if it's in the right location, you'll always have a use for it. So the city centres where there's a demand for space, whether that's retail or office or industrial or residential, as long as you've got those hubs. What's really interesting is those hubs remain the same hubs because of the people they attract there. So, you know, the universities and how they keep the students thereafter. It's also about transport. So one of the interesting things about transport is how that changes over 10 years. We've all heard about whether there's going to be automated driverless cars. You know, how's that going to change the world? I think we always feel like it's far away. There's also something called Hyperloop, which is... What's that? Oh, it's amazing. So you can tell I'm a bit of a geeky scientist, but it's a maglev train in a vacuum. It uses a magnetism to sort of hover above the tracks, and then obviously in a vacuum you have... Uh, no air friction. So you can go pretty fast. So they're trialling this in the Middle East, so between Dubai and Abu Dhabi, and they're also trialling it between, I think it's San Francisco and Los Angeles. And if you could do that in the UK, it would mean you could get from London to Manchester in 20 minutes. Well, how would that change how we use the real estate space in, in the UK? I'm from Lancashire, so I always say, oh, London could become a suburb of Manchester and all my uh, southern friends laugh and go you mean Manchester will become a suburb of London but you know it's that sort of debate about how we'll use space in the future so as the risk gets further out i.e the further into the future you go the bigger the sort of cone of uncertainty of risk that you have the more conservative you have to be as a lender as you go to that downside scenario so we do lend for Scottish widows longer than five years but of course the risk approach we take is different and we tend to do lower leverage financing because of that additional risk over the long term. What qualities do you look for for someone who wants to work in real estate finance? So I think the biggest thing for me is curiosity. Someone who turns up at work every morning and questions everything. As I say we're always sort of analysing stuff as bankers as I'm sure every part of the industry is. But someone who can really sort of get to grips with stress testing and understanding the variables would be really important and curiosity is part of that. And when you think of real estate, there's very few industries out there that combine a whole range of other sectors. So, you know, whether it's how the economy plays into the real estate, how demographics play in, i.e. urbanisation, how technology will change real estate but not only that from a basic day-to-day point of view I know you know you could have an office building up in Aberdeen and that's very linked to oil and gas so you need to know a little bit about oil and gas if you're going to land in Aberdeen you also are lending potentially I know retail is slightly challenging at the moment but if you're lending on retail you know you're thinking about consumer sentiment savings unemployment rates So like the economy, the demographics, how urbanisation works, the changing consumer behaviour in terms of online shopping versus going to the actual bricks and mortar. And that obviously has a knock-on effect on logistics, on industrial. So 
there's really, you know, every sector you can think of occupies real estate and how they do is the way that you analyse real estate. And so having a curiosity and an interest in all those different views and all those different sectors, you know, whether it's technology changing real estate or whether it's technology companies occupying real estate, you have to know something about that industry. So curiosity is key. Yes, absolutely. So what does a typical day look like for you? You're not only managing director, but you're also a mum of three. And we'll go on to that later. But what does a typical day look like? So um, I've never set an alarm. Well, for the last seven years, I haven't set an alarm because normally my waking moment is someone peering over me at about six in the morning and uh, shouting mummy into my ear. So that's always a good start to the day. (laughs) So, yeah, so I, I tend to spend a little bit of time with the kids in the morning. But my husband, who is a lawyer, tends to have a later start than me. So he takes the kids to school or looks after them until our childcare arrives, which is great. So I tend to get up, get in the shower and get to work as soon as I can. And the balancing force of that is my husband works late, so I tend to get home earlier in the evenings. So get to work as soon as I can. We tend to have, especially at the start of a week, early management meetings just to sort of set the tone either for the week or for the day and say, look, what are our priorities going to be for the day? And it really sets you up well to do that you have a very clear view you can nip things in the bud if you can see things going down a track that you need to pull back fairly quickly so once we've done that sort of management meeting start and that could be both management teams the way I think about it so I'm on the large corporates exco executive committee so real estate and housing is part of a larger team within Lloyds Bank and that larger team is large corporates so I sit on the executive committee of that representing real estate and housing but also I have my management team which is the real estate and housing management team so it's sort of both upwards and downwards as, as I like to think about it so we do that and then to be honest my day revolves around three things really which is I make sure that I have a client meeting Every day, you know, you've got to be out there seeing the clients and understanding their needs. The people that I work with, so whether that a check-in to see how they're doing, a performance discussion to say, you know, how can we help you? What's your learning and development plans? Or just walking the floor, going around, talking to the team and seeing how they're doing. It's amazing what you can pick up when you just wander around an open plan office and talk to people. Um, So that's really important. And then the other point of it is obviously we're a highly regulated industry. So a lot of my time is based on the sort of regulation side and making sure that we've got all that in order. I also sit on the boards of the BPF, British Property Federation, and CREFSI, which is the Commercial Real Estate Finance Council, and sit on lots of committees across Lloyd's. So yes, quite a lot of it is obviously doing committees and, and regulations. Once that's done, sort of I try and get home at around sort of between 7 and 730 put the kids to bed which I tell you is my most exhausting hour of the entire day normally bribe them with a bit of chocolate as they go up to bed and as soon as they're in bed honestly I sort of go and sit for 10 minutes on my own and it's the most luxurious 10 minutes of the day I don't have anyone speaking to me or me having to speak to someone and I'm not a very uh someone who needs solitude but that 10 minutes every day is make a cup of tea sit down on the sofa and don't think about anything just stare at a brick wall type thing after that an hour of pottering in the house deciding what to eat I'm not a cook and I've never been a cook so it tends to be something rustled up fridge soup is my favorite <laughs> blend everything into a soup it normally tastes delicious add a bit of cream um and then yeah try and relax for an hour or so and then head to bed fairly early and start the whole thing again the next day right so Maddie we're now on to our quick tick questions otherwise known as the most important part of the interview so I want your first reactions get ready cue the music 
double espresso or herbal ginger tea. <laughs> okay, so um, I hate the taste of coffee. I can't even have like tiramisu or... Gosh, what's another coffee flavour dessert? Like a coffee renoir. Oh, that's very 70s. Um, so I couldn't have the coffee, but I definitely need some form of caffeine in the ginger tea. So whether I could add a little bit of Diet Coke into the ginger tea, that would taste disgusting, but I'm sure that would be the right answer. That can be arranged, yeah. <laughs> don't worry. Sterling or Bitcoin? Mm. I still quite like having cash in my pocket and in my hand, so I think I'm going to have to say sterling. There's nothing better than just knowing what you've got in your wallet and uh, and, yeah planning accordingly <laughs> no nasty surprises single let or multi-let so as a banker i'm gonna to have to say multi-let you know it's about distribution of risk and multi-let is definitely ticks that box early start or late finish so i'd love it to be late finish that's definitely my preference but unfortunately i seem to get woken up very early so i'm gonna to have to go for early start and finally wimbledon or the ashes oh, gosh i love them both do you love the strawberries and cream at Wimbledon, but given I met my husband at the Ashes and we love cricket, I would say the Ashes. So we're now coming on to part three of the interview where we talk about social aspects, which we're all interested in. So the first one is to do with sustainability. Madeline, you've said to stay relevant, we constantly need to innovate in what ways are you seeking to lead the way in innovation at Lloyd's? You know, sustainability is a really good point here because we want to be the UK's leading sustainability bank. And I think it's going to be on everyone's agendas, whether you're in politics or in banking or in investment. We've seen this week there's huge wildfires in Australia. The Prime Minister over there is not admitting it's climate change, but I studied geophysics and cosmochemistry and earth sciences at university, and I can tell you now that climate change is having significant impact on our weather systems, etc. So we have to innovate. We have to lead the way. I think if we lead it for government to do, it will be too late. The EU climate summit that's just taken place, Lloyds was one of 130 banks that signed up to meeting the criteria of the Paris Agreement, which the governments had done previously. Out of the 130 banks, that represents 47 trillion of assets, which is a third of the world's assets. So we're really making headway now. And I really want to be at the forefront of that. And I think when you go out and talk to people about sustainability, everyone cares about it, but there's definitely quite a wide range and wide spectrum of people who are able to try and do something about it in their businesses. So what we found is with the large investors into real estate or the large REITs for example they have their own sustainability teams and they're doing a fantastic job the same with the house builders it's really top of their agenda as we get down to the smaller businesses they do want to make an impact but they're finding it hard to do so so the role of the bank is always to go out there in the community find the issues of the day and try and help solve them so that's what we're trying to do We've heard on this podcast before that sustainability is increasingly becoming a business case as well as a social case From a bank's perspective, aside from the Green Lending Initiative, do you consider your client's ESG, which is Environmental, Social and Governance Criteria, for our listeners that don't know the jargon yet, when deciding whether to work with them? Absolutely. It's one of the aspects that I'm really, really keen to focus on. You know, if you don't have ESG as one of your main drivers of investing, in my view, you're really investing as an opportunistic player 
there's nothing wrong with opportunistic players, but you're not really thinking about the long-term impact of your investing. And let's be honest, no one knows what the future holds. So you invest over a timescale, but over that timescale, things can change considerably. So having a clear view on how your property, real estate, whatever you're investing into will impact the society that operates in it and around it will be the driver of whether that asset is successful. So absolutely key. I think the interesting bit here is how do we reach everyone out there? So as I say, the larger companies are able to have teams that focus entirely on this. So it's how you get that across the board. And that's why this year, after our Green Lending Initiative, we're launching the Sustainability App. And that's to get greater reach. So that is clients can put their real estate assets on there and it gives you a very clear snapshot of what you can do to make your real estate greener. I understand that Lloyd's is also working on understanding bigger data better. Could you explain this? Sure. So we know the power of data. I think the comment is data is the new oil. And a lot of people want to make investment decisions based on the data rather than necessarily, you know, hope this will be okay. Let's have the data to back it up. So at Lloyd, we have one in four credit card and debit card transactions goes through a Lloyd bank account. And actually up in Scotland through our Bank of Scotland brand, it's one in two. So as I said, the the key here will be taking that vast amount of data and making it into something that is relevant, both internally. So what we want to use it for is making better credit decisions, but also externally to help our clients make better decisions and for them to be able to discuss it with their investors and use it in that way. So we're really excited about the aspect of the more data there is, as long as you harness it correctly, the more educated you can be about the decisions you're making. Maddie, as well as having a full-on day job, you've already mentioned you are a wife and a mother of three, from the sounds of it, very active children. How do you juggle all these responsibilities effectively and efficiently? Gosh, what a great question. So I would immediately say I don't. And I think we need to be really honest about that. I think what's been quite damaging for a lot of people out there is this assumption that there's the woman who can do it all, the perfect working mother. It's absolute nonsense. Most of the women I speak to, or most of the men also, who are working parents, it's really challenging. But what's great about it is the more we talk about it, the more we open up and have debates and discussions about how it should work, the better it will be. So I'm still really good friends with all my uni mates and there's seven of us who are really, really close. Last day of university, we asked each other, what do you want to do in sort of in the next 10 years? And nothing wrong with this, but sort of three out of the seven of us went, well, I'll have a really interesting and successful job, but hopefully in 10 years time, I'll be married with kids. Now, think about that today. Things have moved on so much. People just don't assume that their career is over once they're married and have kids. The careers are much longer. You know, retirement age used to be much lower. People are living for longer. I heard, I don't know whether this is a good thing or a bad thing. I heard that some of our kids or the next generation will be able to live till they're sort of 150, even someone said 200. So careers are going to be much, much longer. And being open and honest about what works, what doesn't work. And that's both ways. So what I found really interesting is, I'm working for a company like Lloyd's, is that absolutely brilliant at listening and they will do their best to understand your issues and work around you. But what I found really interesting as I've gone through sort of motherhood is actually we still live in a society that is very traditional 
outside of work. So some of the corporates are really on top of it. And my kids go to an amazing school. It's absolutely brilliant for many ways. But when I first started, they had Father's Day breakfast and the Mother's Day event was in the afternoon because fathers apparently worked and mothers didn't. I don't think they really thought that. It was just how it had always been. So I went and spoke to the head and she was great and took a couple of years for me to convince them. But now we both have breakfast events. So it's about changing not just corporates and not just the place you work, but also having open and honest conversations with a whole range of different parts of society to try and make it easier. But I mean, honestly, it's also about your support network. I don't have family close. My husband's from Australia and my family are absolutely brilliant and will do everything they can. They live in Lancashire. So as long as I've planned ahead, they will come down, but they're not just around the corner if something goes wrong. So having a fantastic support network and whether that's community, neighbours, but also whether that's at work. You know, I have fantastic people at work and we have each other's back. So, you know, if they need to go home early one day because they have something happening in their family... I will cover and vice versa. So, you know, a good support network is absolutely vital. It was recently announced in July 19 that you were going to share your role with Andy Hume, who since 2015 has been chief executive and head of fund for the Housing Growth Partnership. The job share works by you working Monday to Wednesday, he Wednesday to Friday, allowing for a handover on the Wednesday. This is, of course, a real example of flexible working and it's exemplified by senior persons within the industry, which is huge. How is it going? Oh, absolutely brilliant. You know, we talk a lot about diversity in companies. One of the big things is diversity of thought, whether that's sort of diversity of background, diversity of race, of religion, of gender. But where it really plays out, if you do a job share, you have, interestingly, new ideas so I've been in the role for two years and he comes in and he goes why are you doing it like that and you sort of step back and you go oh yeah I sort of I'm doing it like that because that's the way I've done it and on the flip side for him he's starting a new role but with someone who knows where the pitfalls are knows the tried and tested ways of doing things so the combination of the two of us is really good I'm really enjoying it and I know he is and I think the team are really warming to it as well You know, there's a couple of things that you learn very quickly, which is don't let things slip between the gaps. Instead of having approvals going to both of us, we have a central inbox and then we can manage it that way. So there's a couple of tips you can pick up here, there and everywhere. But it's absolutely brilliant. And, you know, what's interesting is people say it's very brave to do that. And, you know, how are you finding it? And my point is, is if you work hard and you're good at what you do and you're passionate about what you do. Most organisations will try and work with you to find a solution. And Lloyd's are no different and they were absolutely fantastic about this. And do you know what? I don't know whether you can hear from my voice even, like the energy I now have on the three days that I work is phenomenal. So they are probably getting far more than six days out of us because I feel like on the three days I am working, I'm getting through so much more stuff than I was in comparison to sort of a daily routine over five days. So yeah, I think it's absolutely brilliant. Productivity, energy and new ideas and sort of tried and tested ways combination has been really, really phenomenal. How long did it take you to decide this? And did you ever, you know, worry, you know, losing a bit of that ownership? So how long did it take me to think about this? I'm quite a um, decisive person, I have to admit. 
one day I just woke up and I was, I, I love my job and I knew I loved my job. So the idea of getting out of the sort of rat race of work was terrifying for me. But I just knew that I needed a bit more balance in my life. This isn't balance where it's like, well, I have to do three days forever. This is a period of time where I just want to have a bit more of that balance. So that's in terms of obviously the kids, but also making sure that I'm looking after myself. I hadn't been to the gym for three years. So, you know, making sure that there is time for all aspects of my life. And I feel like is two years the right length of time? Who knows? I'll tell you after two years, but it gives you that headspace. And I think once you've decided that, you recognise that it's all about balance. And so you can't then start a job share and be imbalanced about wanting to hand responsibility over because the only way a job share is going to work is if you both enjoy the role and both enjoying the role is not about one person taking all the good stuff and leaving all the admin and day-to-day grind to the other person you've got to let them enjoy the job as well and it's only going to work if both of you are enjoying it and so that balance really allows you to recognize when you're tensing up about giving something over and just ease into it. Have you ever experienced imposter syndrome and do you ever feel pressured by the fact that you're one of few senior women in the industry? So I think everyone has felt imposter syndrome at some stage in their career. In fact, probably most days. Talking about the pace of change, it is getting quicker all the time. So the idea that someone knows everything about everything is completely insane. There will be aspects where there's probably a member of your team who's more of an expert in that part of what you're doing and you should never be afraid to say that's a really interesting point I know x amount on this but I will get back to you or I have another team member who I want to bring along to to discuss that in more detail now that doesn't land very well if you have known that that's what you're going to talk about and you're just not prepared but if you know I think Everyone is feeling that way. And so you have to fake it till you make it type thing. But it's about not to be afraid to show weakness. Actually, people respect you far more and trust you far more if they think that you are saying, well, I'm very strong over here. I can tell you everything about this aspect. This bit, I have someone in my team who runs it or whatever, you know, or I can get external advice. I will come back to you with that. So being bold about saying what you do and don't know but everyone experiences it I wouldn't get too worried worried about it do you have a mentor what would be your advice to women who are struggling to find inspiration due to the lack of women in roles ahead of them in inverted commas interestingly enough my mentors have on the whole mostly been men and why I've quite liked having male mentors is because I I think about things in my own way and sometimes it's quite good to have someone who's quite different from you and it's had different experiences to say well have you thought about this so for example you know with that imposter syndrome thing it's men and women who experience it it's not just women women are more likely to experience it so you can sort of say to a man how would you handle this would you have handled this differently I've admired lots of women so although they haven't necessarily been directly my mentors I do have a really amazing group of friends female friends in the industry who I admire immensely sitting across a range of um, different parts of the industry so one of them's private equity one of them's a developer another one is also in banking with me one of them's residential one of them's office so you know having those people out there that you can reach out to and talk to is absolutely vitally important and actually I think the turning point of my career was having a senior woman ahead of me who it was suddenly this defining moment I remember it being like not 
what I want it to be, i.e. how, what is the route to getting there? But it's the sort of person I wanted to be and she sort of exemplified how to be a working mum, how to not be a woman but behave like a man, which I think was happening quite a lot when I was at the start of my career. And, you know, what I'm really passionate about is bringing your whole self to work and being feminine and being a woman and expressing your views in whatever way you see fit and not having to adapt to a mould. So it is important to have females out there that you can reach out to and discuss. But it's also really important to have male mentors as well. So sort of it's always the combination of the two. You are a fan of innovation and diversity. In September 19, I think you've already mentioned that you joined the British Property Federation Board to support it in meeting its commitments to promote a more diverse and inclusive property industry. What do you want the real estate sector to look like in five years' time? It's an answer I've used before, but I want the real estate industry to reflect the society that we come from, have a range of different views, a range of different backgrounds of people, but also to keep its personality. I think you mentioned at the start there, which was, you know, when I didn't know what to do, I wanted to come into real estate because it was intellectual, but also had a personality. And what I really love still about it is the openness, the range of different people we have. You know, we're really important to society in the fact that we're providing the social infrastructure. And so understanding um, the societies that we help, that we provide the places that they live, work, eat, socialise at, the idea that we can all be that force for good. And the only way we do that is by continuing to innovate, but be a people-led industry. We are and will continue to be that. And, you know, the BPF have been incredibly forward-thinking about making sure their board reflects the wider industry. And prior to that, obviously, I was the chair of Craftsy and they understood the power of that as well. So I think we're on the right trajectory. So I don't think we need to do anything wholesale different. But I would like it to, I want us to make sure we hit the targets we have, but remain with their targets. Obviously, we can discuss quotas and targets, but, you know, to keep the personality and be a people-led business. And to close... Is there any advice, Madeleine McDougall, that you'd wish you'd been given at the start of your career that you would like to share with our listeners here today? So I think it goes back to my point about being bold, being brave, understanding your own strengths and really playing on them. And what I've discovered is if you bring your whole self to work, if you really enjoy your work, find what you like. It doesn't mean that you can't do what you don't like, but try and find the role that you enjoy the most. And actually, if you really do that then you'll succeed no matter what and if you succeed you can make the change in the industry that you want rather than having to fit into the way that it's always been done you can be the change thank you madeline mcdougall for coming on to the property woman podcast thank you very much